Welcome to Coop Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. Uh, last night was a first. Uh, we went to a 4th of July party. Great time. Max Wassa always has an awesome party. It's up there on the top of the hill on um, Sherman Oaks, uh, on Coy. Just an eclectic crowd. And the lovely Joanne, she actually is hungover today. Joanne never, never drinks. And last night, I don't know what it is. Maybe it was a white wine. Thank God she didn't switch to gin. There was a gin bottle there. And uh, she fell asleep in the lift getting home because we were responsible. Actually, we called a lift. But then the guy stopped like seven houses down. And I walked down and I'm like, hey, man. I said, are you going to come back up here? And he basically called me an asshole and said, you have an attitude, which I didn't. And so we, we got an Uber. And they charged me two times. But still, it was worth it because you know what? Don't drink and drive, people. Because it's not worth it. Anyway, we have a great show. This guy, this is my, my guest today. I'm going to tell you, we're going to talk about his career. He's, he's had a great career. But right now, his show, Murder in the First, his character has taken a different term where he's just basically, uh, he's he's sort of pompous. I never got that from him, but he's such a good actor, he pulls it off. And uh, my guest is Kerry Graham. How you doing, Kerry? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Now, now you, uh, you're Canadian, so did, uh, did, you, did you celebrate 4th of July at all, or did you celebrate Canada Day the other day? Well, I, I celebrate the 4th of July. I've been here since I was uh, 17, 18 years old, so I'm, uh, I feel like an American. Okay, so just now you, you, you grew up in Canada. Yes, sir. And now, at what, as a kid, did you, always want, did you always know you'd be an actor, or, or what brought you down this path? Because you've had a very successful career. What, what started you in the acting, and, and how did you, growing up away from the States, how did you fulfill that dream? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think I was always sort of interested in being a doctor or going into medicine. Or uh, When I was really young, it was a veterinarian. Um, and I did, some, I did a play in high school. I was a high school athlete, and I played a lot of basketball, and I thought drama might be an easy class to take where it's not too stressful. So I can uh, have more time for the baskets. And um, I did a play in high school, and uh, people were like, "This is this might be your path, man." Um, so so <laughs> my my parents were sort of like, "What about medicine?" I'm like, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the bus to New York. I'm gonna audition for an acting school, and uh, see what happens." So you grew up near Toronto, right? I grew up in eastern Ontario. I'm about four and a half hours east of Toronto, and about an hour and a half west of Montreal. So how long was the bus ride? And I mean, and, and how did you, you know, at, at that age, we, you know, like I went to a state college in New Jersey. It was an hour away. I lived there. I came back once in a while. It was, it was the convenient move to make. But for you, being, being a guy who's, you know, you weren't that close to New York. Did you just really put some thought in it? Or did you just say, hey, man, this is what I'm going to do. I'm getting on the bus. I had, I had some balls. I, I, I literally jumped on a bus. I, um, it was a Greyhound bus. I caught the bus and took it down to New York and, and, uh, I loved the city instantly. I think it was like a 16 or 17 hour bus ride. Um, and, and I, I got to the city and I was like, I love it here. I love the energy. It was a little bit manic. It was a little bit dangerous. It was a little bit dirty. And I was coming from a town of like a thousand people. And, and it was literally like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. I just stepped into this magical world and I was like, I've never felt so safe and so at home. So you get there, you're in New York, you're a young kid, your parents are going, he's not going to be a doctor. Nope. (laughs) So what do you do? Do you sit there and do you enroll in a school or what do you do and how do you get your career started? I I went down to uh, New York to audition. The first time I went down was to audition for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. 
And uh, my mom had sort of, when she was a kid, she'd auditioned there and gotten in, but she didn't go because she was afraid of the city and she was afraid of the instability of being an actor. And her father wanted her to have a, a real job. And so she'd sort of mentioned to me, uh, talked about it before. So I went, when I was in high school one day, I went and called the, the, the 411 and, and looked it up and got the info and sent away for the brochure and set myself up an audition. I went down to the school and, and did a couple of monologues for them. Were you nervous at all? Because, I mean, you, you had the high school you had the high school experience, but it, this is, you're playing for the big leagues. It's like basically, it's uh, reminiscent of a guy who has the tryout for, you know, the Mets or the Phillies or the Yankees. He, when, he, when, when you have that shot, which you did, you have to step up to the plate. Were you a little bit hesitant and nervous, or did you just say, I got my game on, I'm ready to rock it? I was so young, I didn't know about being nervous. I think there's something about youth and being adventurous and adventuresome that you don't really get nervous, and you don't see the size of what you're about to do even while you're doing it. And for me, I, I don't. I didn't feel any nerves at all. It was. It was kind of a. It was kind of a hoot. I had a great time. They were super nice to me. I did some crazy monologues. I did one Shakespearean monologue, and I did a contemporary monologue, and and uh, you know, I, I loved it. I, I didn't feel. I, and it's funny with acting with me is that when I'm actually acting, I don't feel nervous at all. I think it happens though. I think because I, I I did stand up for years uh, from back in the 80, late eighties and early nineties. And it was always the before getting on stage, you would be nervous. And I don't think it was nervousness. It wasn't a nervous where you weren't going to deliver. It was a nervousness of if the crowd would enjoy you or not. But once you got on stage, you found that groove. And I think it's because of what you want to do. So that probably makes sense that when you when, once you start acting, you're in the groove because you've had a great career and you're proven. Yeah, I went into this. It was, it was kind of cool the way the school did it. It wasn't like you didn't sort of go on a stage with a thousand other kids or whatever. They just called me up to the, the woman who, who ran the school, the director of the school at the time, Harrietta Paterka, and she was like, come in the office and do your monologue. So it was just her behind a desk. And so I cleared some chairs out of the way in her little office and went after it. And, and it was, it was it I still remember that experience of that, that sort of freedom of, of, of walking in there and just laying it all out. And, and I thought it went really well. And it was really fun. And Whatever happened, I was sort of like, well, if, if it doesn't work out, I'll, I'll you know grind away in med school or, or wherever I ended up. And if it does work out, this will be a cool adventure. So when you got accepted, had you gone back to Canada or were you still in New York? No, I, was, I went back to Canada and um, I was finishing up high school and um, I was valedictorian in my class. And so there was this sort of uh, getting ready to write this speech and do all this stuff. And then I got a letter in the mail. That's funny because that speech is probably your first monologue in, in front of people. I mean, when you think about it, because I know when I graduated, our friend, my friend Ben Compton gave a killer speech. And that was, I mean, that, you think about it, that was performing because you're acting in front of your peers. And when you're a valedictorian, you're basically the smartest guy in the school. And so it was probably a great learning ground for you. Well, it was, I think it was funny. I, was, I don't know that I was the best student. I, and I don't know that I was the, the most... Um, reliable student in terms of my my uh, showing up to class and and being responsible and being respectful i think i was a pain in the ass most of high school <laughs> and so when i was valedictorian i remember the principal calling me into the office and saying to me I, I hope you take your i hope you take this speech more seriously than you took your time here at my school <laughs> you know you know who else was the actor who was a valedictorian robbie benson he was on my show <laughs> and he told the story robbie benson was a valedictorian and i said 
damn you, Robbie Benson. You're a heartthrob and you're a back to valedictorian. <laughs> I was so pissed. That's funny. That's funny. So, yeah, I did a speech and then, uh, you know, packed my bags and, and uh, off to New York. What was what were your classmates' uh, response to this? Because, as you said, you know, valedictorian, you were going to go to a doctor. You probably got into other colleges. But to go to acting, and you said from a small town in Canada, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very... Um, it's a very ballsy, as you said, choice. What was your reaction of your friends? Were they like, yeah, go kill it? Or were they like, dude, what are you doing? I think there was sort of a mixed feeling. Like, I, I think I was always a little crazy. So people were like, it makes sense that he would do something crazy because he's a little crazy. And uh, But yeah, I think people now sort of look back. I've gotten a lot of Facebooks and, and tweets and messages from old friends and stuff going, dude, that was ballsy. That was really ballsy to drop everything and move to New York and 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 do what you did. It's that's pretty crazy. Isn't it funny how that turns? I went to my uh, thirty year high school reunion two years ago, and uh, I have friends who honestly, I grew up in a, a nice town in uh, New Jersey, and I have friends who are millionaires. I mean, doctors, lawyers, and I'm just an internet radio guy, and I, I get the inter- I get that you know interview great actors. And for me, I'm like a rock star. And I'm going, wait a second, man, you live in a mansion. I mean, it's so funny how people sit there that, that they, they are so envious of, well, especially you because you're on TV and me because I interview people. It must be, it must be weird when you, when you do talk to those people. Well, I, I think it's funny because, um, you know, people, I, I get to make my living at my hobby. So let's say I had gone to med, med school and become a doctor. I probably still would have been involved in some community theater somewhere. And people always say to me, if you retire, what would you do? And I'd say, I'd probably do, I'd probably do theater. So I'm, I'm making a great living at my hobby. And I see people who have sort of taken a safer path. And, yeah, they've made a ton of dough and they've been doctors or lawyers or whatever they're doing. But I think there is some sort of respect for someone who goes after what they love as opposed to what is what is going to make them money. Right. So so you love the acting. You're in school. How does how does the, the program, does it teach you a lot when you're in college? Does it make you grow as an actor? Does it give you a, a sense of uh, the business? Or does it just really make you hone your skills and get your chops up? I don't think it made me hone my skills. I, I, I'll be honest with you. It was a great school. And for me, it was about learning who I was. It was about learning what is it that makes me different and unique from everyone else. It's about learning to take chances. It's about being adventurous. It's about living your life and having new experiences. You know, there is, the, there is an art acting, and they teach a lot of different techniques and how to approach the work. But for me, the biggest thing was living in that city, experiencing the people, and, and growing up as a man, like learning, to, learning about myself. And what is it as an artist that, that I have to say? So, so you, you get your skills honed. Well, you, you, they didn't help you hone your skills, but you were, you were becoming aware of who you are, yep. which would, would add to your performing. You get out of college, then what do you do? How do you sit there and get your get into the career you have now? Because you're well, coming out. There's tons of you guys. You know, you you, you were probably at, you know 23, 24, so you probably were getting. You know, if you had a commercial auditions, or whatever, you're probably playing a college kid or a handsome guy. What? Where did you start? Forging well, your career, I, I took a little different path, Steve. I I, uh, I finished uh, school when I was twenty one, and I'd done a few jobs while I was in school. I was on a soap. I'd done a pilot for ABC. I'd done a couple little movies, and when I got out of school, I, I ended up out in Brooklyn uh, working at this Italian nightclub, and 
And I did a lot of other things than act. I had a whole, <laughs> I had a whole other adventure in Brooklyn that is, that is far, far from, well, it, you know, it, I guess in retrospect, it's not that far from acting, but it was my real education that I had out there. I took about four years out there, three and a half years, and I went wild. What was it? Can, can you talk about it or no? Um, well, was anything you can imagine that would happen in Brooklyn in the late 80s, I was doing. Okay. So, you, you name it. Did you collect any vigs? No. There was still, well, there was a guy who used to come in, there was one of my friends who was on the vig, and every Friday night this guy would come in and basically turn his pockets inside out. Every Friday night. <laughs> It was that kind of place. There was, you know, like I had, uh, there's a very famous gangster who used to come to this place every once in a while who liked his champagne served with a spoon because he wanted to stir the bubbles out of it. And he, he got into it with me one night because I didn't know how to serve him properly. And the bartenders were like, oh, my God, you almost got clipped over a bottle of champagne. And it was, it was, a, it was a life experience that was, was tremendous and exciting and insane. It was, the things I did, I look back now, and I, I've actually written a screenplay about it because it's so insane and so far away from who I was as a human being that it was just, it's mental. It's mental. So, so how did you pull yourself back into what you wanted to do because it seems like it's like anything we get we get absorbed in a certain lifestyle and then you're, you're someone and the problem is many people get trapped in that lifestyle and it's not only working at a a, a club in brooklyn it may be you know someone who becomes a waiter who's making yep. great money and they're stuck in something how did you pull yourself back into and start following your dream again well you know was, there was a, there was a lot of things sort of fell into place for me i i had uh, sort of dropped off the map from school and uh, was running my game in Brooklyn and doing quite well. I mean, I was doing fine uh, running game. And then I got a, a, a phone call from a friend of mine who I went to school with who said, I got this one-act play, and I think you'd be great in it. And the play was called Slam. And it was about two losers in the bathroom of a punk rock nightclub and one of the losers was going to stay and live that life, and the other guy was joining the army. And he said, "I think you should play. <laughs> I think you should play the loser that doesn't leave. I think you're that loser." And I was like, "You know what? You're right. I am that loser. I totally identified with this role. I had long hair, and I made it into a mohawk, and I did this whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do the play." And, uh, I mean, I was still running game and I was still doing my thing, but I would show up to the theater and do this play. And when I was doing the play, uh, an agent from ICM came and he saw me as a ICM big theatrical agency. And, and he saw me and, and I got a, I got a page. You remember the pagers, right? Oh God. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I remember actually it's funny when I moved up here, it was 15 years ago. I lived in Hollywood, uh, yep. right off Hollywood and Highland on a sh road called Leland. And my apartment was a studio for three eighty five. Nice. A month. And there was up on on the corner of Sunset and Highland. There was Um JJ, the King of Beepers. Yeah, <laughs> it was that beeper, and they had the they had the the the, the um, billboards all over L A. It was it was the cheesy looking Armenian guy with a crown and four yeah. girls in bikinis. Yeah, yeah. So I had, I had my little pager, and my pager went off, and I I dialed the number, and it was ICM, and 
they wanted to take a meeting. They saw the play and they wanted to take a meeting. Well, I went in in my leather jacket, my long hair, reeking of booze and, and cigarettes and sat down with these very, very nice people and uh, had a long meeting with them. And, and at the end of the meeting, I went back to the agent's office and he was like, you know, we'd love to represent you, but you scare people. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you, you just, you're, you're a scary dude, man. Um, and he gave me, this is true, he gave me a card to a shrink. And he said, he said, go see this guy and, and maybe he can help you out a little bit. Take three months, maybe have a bath and, <laughs> you know, clean up. And if you can handle that, come back and see us. So you, so you got your shit together. I did. I got my shit together, and I went back to see them, and and uh, you know started started work. So now you're 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 in the acting game now. You have ICM, which is a great agency. I mean, especially yep. back then, it was you know ICM, William Morris, and CAA. They're they're yep. the creme de la creme. What do they start sending you out on? And and what I mean, because you said you were, and you, and you're you're not a opposing you're not an imposing guy on screen you have a confidence but back then you had the long hair you what were they pitching you as were you going going out as a thug were you going out as a lawyer because i know now you, you play people of you know lawyers or you know the concerning father what were they sending you out as i was i was i was kind of um psychotic psychopathic uh sleazy dirty Crazy gangsters. Uh, I did a Hal Hartley film where I ran a whole porn industry thing. Um, I, I screen tested for uh, Tony Scott for True Romance. That was me and uh, James Gandolfini tested for that. Oh wow! So so so, but you didn't get it. And then now, how was that? Did you feel bummed because it ended up becoming such a cult movie? I mean, what's that? What's that feel like when when you you know you didn't get the part? Was is is it? Do you look back and are you are you bummed about it or you go, hey, I wasn't right at the time? I was. I, I ended up doing another movie shortly after uh, called Money for Nothing with John Cusack and and um, uh, Michael Madsen and James Gandolfini happened to be in it. Now I didn't know that he got True Romance and he and I went out one night. We were talking about roles that we wish we'd gotten that we didn't. And I said to him, I said I auditioned. I did a screen test for this movie True, uh, True Romance and I really wanted the part. And he was like, what? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I just did this movie, True Romance. I said, what role? He told me, and I was like, oh, my God. You got the part that I was up for. <laughs> what was Gandalf any like? I know uh, you probably, do you know Paul Carafotis? Yeah. Paul, well, Paul has told you know, the first night he, he, he worked with Gandalf and he was an, it's a beautiful story. But as an actor, was he, was he ready to actually change acting, which he did, for the character Tony Soprano made the villain bad, and after that we saw Brian Cranston, we saw you know Michael Chiklis. What was he like as a person, just to hang out with? He was great. He he was he was a wild cat. He he liked to have a good time. He was very uh, uh, he was much smarter than I think than people thought he was at the time. Um, he was very into the work. He he loved acting, and he was a very generous dude. We we had a great time. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was in that movie too, so it was like. Myself and Gandolfini and Philip Seymour Hoffman spent a lot of time, and Cusack spent a lot of time hanging out together. And I could see, you could sort of see the seeds of Gandolfini growing into that kind of character because he was, he was incredibly likable, but he also had this very dangerous side to him. Okay. And, so and that's what made him, I think that's what made him sort of like this, you know, the anti hero that you loved. You loved him, and yet he was a horrible human being. 
Right. That, that's, that's, that, well, it's like Breaking Bad, as I said, and it's like The Shield. I mean, Michael Chiklis, you know, he's, yep. a, he's a dirty cop. And, you know, your character now, we'll talk about murder first, but you're, we love you. But this season, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> you're, go, you're going off the hinges a little bit. Yeah, he's a horrible guy. Oh. <laughs> no, okay. he's a horrible guy. It, it's straight out. I mean, it's, it's almost sociopathic. So, so you're acting away, and then and then yeah. you're you're getting parts, you're getting movies, and then eventually you you become a recurring on Suddenly Susan. Was that one of your first recurring characters? That was my first regular. And what was that like as an actor? Because because it's funny because it's like you know we we talk about you had the four years in your Brooklyn days. Because when you look at your IMDb, most people when you look at IMDb, they're they're you, you correlate the age they graduated, and you have that gap because as you notice things. But you you were busting your balls for a while, uh, your ass for a long time, and then all of a sudden you get suddenly Susan. What's it like when you you get to be a, uh, a regular? And that show was actually really good, and it was very talented people. Yeah, it was it was it was an interesting experience because I'd done a couple of pilots for Warner Brothers, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Peter Roth basically was like, <clears throat> "I want you to be uh, a regular on Suddenly Susan." I'm like, "Yeah, but I'm not funny." And Peter was like, "Well, I've seen the pilots you did, and you're funny, so you're on the show." And I was like, "Okay, we're on the show," uh, and it was it was it was fantastic. It was it was a, it was such a great experience to work with great people. Uh, it was a great learning curve for me, uh, and it sort of opened a lot of doors for me in terms of getting opportunities to do more of the stuff that I really wanted to do. What was it like acting with Brooke Shields? Because we all loved her in Blue Lagoon. We all <laughs> loved her in New Calvin ads. We a little like, "Holy shit! I'm I'm, I'm acting with Brooke Shields." Yeah, she, she, you know what, though? She, we hit it off right away. She was great. Uh, she was like a sister. We, we hung out a lot. Um, lovely woman. Really cared about the work. Really cared about the show. Uh, her husband, Chris Henchy, uh, great guy. Really good showrunner. They're just, they're just good people. I mean, everyone on the show, Nestor Carbonell and I, who was on the show, he, he's, we're still close friends. Kathy Griffin and I are still friends. And that was like, you know, 15, 16 years ago. So, and we've all stayed in touch, and we're all still friends. So I think it was it was a nice family unit. So that was a comedy, and so now at that point, when you left the show, the show went off. Were you sitting there thinking, "I'm going to follow the comedy path," which you had said you you said you you aren't you didn't think you were funny? Did you say I want to follow comedy path, or did you want to follow the drama path, or were you just like I don't care whatever I get booked on? I just wanted to do something. I wanted to do like I wanted to do good stuff. I wanted to do good work, and I think like I went from. Suddenly Susan and I went on to 24, did some guesty stuff on some other shows, some, some kind of heavier dramas. And I was like, I like this. I like the, I like the darkness. I like the heavy stuff. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I did a, a pilot. Uh, I had my own half hour for a little while. It was a pilot we did with Patrick Warburton and myself. And, and uh, it didn't go. So I sort of had the comedy thing still going. But I was really drawn to the heavier, darker characters. And you end up you end up becoming becoming a recurring on NYPD Blue, regular. Okay, I, I I see the thing. So regular. How great was it to work with David Milch? I've had so many people who've been on NYPD Blue, uh, and they just say working with David Milch is just a godsend because the guy. Technically, people have said, and people who've also worked on Deadwood say the guy is a genius. No, there's no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind that he's a genius. He he is he is he's it's it's a lot of work to work with David, um, because of his process. But the the stuff that he comes up with and and the vision that he has is is second to none. There's very few guys 
in the history of television that have ever been able to do what he's done, create the kind of tone and the the language and the characters that he created, I think are, he, he's an iconic television writer and producer. Yeah, because uh, Rob Cohen was on the show last, Scott Cohen, I'm sorry, was on the show last week and <clears> he said how he was leaving LA to fly back to New York and, and they had Milch said, you gotta come back, you gotta, you gotta read like three pages of dialogue. I heard he was very demanding, but as an actor, it was very fulfilling just to sit there and f- be in that kind of demand. I, I, I liked it. I, I, I like it when showrunners are demanding. I, I, I like working for Bojko because he sets the bar high and he has expectations and he wants people to get off their ass and get their work done. And, and I like working in that environment. I, 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 I like to be pressed. I like to be pushed. And, and I like to try to expect excellence. I mean, what are, why not? What are we doing then? Right, we're, right. just, we're just collecting a paycheck. I, I want to create something that I'm proud of. I want to create something that moves people. Do you ever think that, that that work ethic, which I grew up with, you know, East Coast and my, my mom's parents were right off the boat and I, I was instilled with a work ethic. Do you ever think your work ethic comes from when you were hustling in New York and, and, and running that shit in Brooklyn? Do you ever think it came from that because you really had to work it? I do. I think I think it was that. I think that my father was a my father was a white collar worker with a blue collar sensibility and to sort of stand back and watch how hard he worked when he didn't have to. I think that he put in probably double the time that he really needed to to get the job done because he was so concerned about being good and he wanted to be respected and he wanted to be on top of it. And you sort of see that and then you get to Brooklyn and then you're running game and you realize how much work it takes and how hard it is. And then when it comes to the acting, you go, this is such a shot in the dark, this business. This is such trying to catch lightning in a bottle that if you don't have a great work ethic, it's very highly unlikely, unless you're an underwear model, that you're going to get anything, especially as a young guy. So you've got to really grind, and 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 I was I was all about that. I like to really work hard. So now you're getting now with NYPD Blue, you play a, a police lieutenant. Is that your, is that was that your role? Yeah, I took over. I took over as the lieutenant of the squad. So did you find your what they were? asking you to act going from the psychotic to the cop did you feel like there was a all of a sudden a different direction for you that, that you were going to get cast in no I you know what I, we what Stephen and I talked about this role and, and and I really wanted to make this character much different from anything they'd seen on NY Pleady Blue and I think that he was in his own way a little this character uh, Lieutenant Bale I think that he was a little crazy in his own right in that he was so meticulous and he was so by the rules and he ran this precinct like he would a see like a CEO would run a company and I think that there is in in that sort of mindset there is some craziness to it because he's not trying to be one of the guys he's not trying to fit in he's gonna put his he's gonna put his mark on this precinct he's putting people under his thumb and he didn't care and I kind of like that ballsiness of him I was really attracted to that that part of him that was just like, I don't give a shit how you guys feel about me. We're going to do this my way. Don't, don't you wish we could do that in life every day? It's so funny. Sometimes you sit there and, and you know, and we're creative people, so we're a bit sensitive, and that's the God's honest truth. And uh, But yeah. isn't it sometimes you sit there and wish you can go, man, I just want to walk into a bar, take a piss on the bar, and tell everyone to go screw themselves and walk out and go, that felt great. Yeah, I've kind of done that, and it does feel good. It feels really good. <laughs> when, did, um, when did you do that? i got to hear this story. It, you know, I've done a lot of stuff. In Brooklyn, we, we did a lot of crazy things, and, and uh, 
you know, there was no, when you're hanging out with certain guys and you're with a certain crowd, you get to kind of do whatever you want. And, and there was, there's a lot of fun to be had when you feel, especially you're 18, 19 years old and you're hanging out with guys that are 30 or 35 and you feel invincible. You feel completely invincible. And I remember one night I was working in the club and, and there was a guy who was trying to do some blow on the bar and he laid out a line on the bar and the, and the owner of the club at the time was like, look, I know there's a lot of drugs here, but I don't want any done in public. So I blew the line off the bar and this guy went crazy and I went over the bar after him and there was a lot of name calling and, and fists were thrown and, and he ended up getting tossed and the doorman turned to me and he was like, you really messed up. And I'm like, I don't, what are you talking about? He goes, you have no idea who that guy is, do you? And I said, no, and I don't care. That was sort of, you know, my young macho. Well, cut to like six hours later, he comes back, and I, I remember being on the payphone at the front of the club, and, and there was a Cadillac rolling down the street, and the back window came down, a gun came out, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he started shooting. And I ducked down behind, you remember those old cigarette machines that used to pull the levers? And oh, the, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I ducked down behind that, and, and the guy's shooting the window out, and the bottles are popping on the bar, and I'm like, I'm in a movie. It's, it's literally a movie. And then the 16-year-old busboy comes running out of the kitchen. He's got his nine out, and he's waving it around the air, screaming, who's shooting, who's shooting? It was that kind of, it was that kind of world. That was, the, that, was the, the, that was sort of encompasses the, the world that I was living in. And, you and think, people were like, oh, you should quit. You should never come back here. And I thought, if I never come back, then, I'm, then I, lose that. I, lose my, I lose my thing. I lose my, my macho, whatever young guy craziness I thought I had. It's your swagger. And, and you would have lost that. And, and to be an actor, you have to have a certain swagger because it does take resilience. It does take balls. And a lot of people don't stick around. Right. So I go back and I worked there for another two and a half years. And, and so I got this sort of, I had some status, right? I had status and I was now considered a tough guy or a crazy guy or whatever you want to say. So when I got on set and, and people were asking certain things of me, oh, can you do this? You can do that. I'm like, please, this is, this is, this is cakewalk. <laughs> yeah. It's like, can I act like I'm getting shot at? Hell, been there, done that. Can, can Move you, on. No. I remember one time I was doing a movie and, and the guy, the, the gun wrangler was like, I want to show you how to handle this nine. And I remember taking the nine apart and putting, loading it up and putting the rounds back in and putting it all back together and putting the safety on. He was like, oh, shit. Okay, so you've had some gun training. I'm like, yeah, a little bit. We're good. We're so, good. So, so you're, you're acting NYPD Blue gets done. And then you yep. move on to House, which is then you're working with another great show. I mean... Did you ever feel blessed that you just fall into these great projects and you work with amazing creators? Well, it's funny because there is a there is a something that goes with working on a Stephen Bochco show, and and when you work for a Stephen Bochco show, as soon as you get hired as a regular, your status in town as an artist as an actor is elevated. So you come off of NYPD Blue, which was an iconic TV show. There were a lot of options in town for me to go to. There were a lot of places and a lot of people wanted to have me be, be working for them. So it was, it was an incredible blessing. I was incredibly blessed. I, I, was, I think I was recurring on four shows at the same time and jumping on like I was doing House and I was doing Desperate Housewives. I was doing Boston Legal and I was doing Men in Trees, I think, all in that same time. And it was really fun. I, was, I just felt really blessed. It was sort of like 
playing all these different characters. One was a comedy, one was a dramedy, one was sort of, I don't know what house was, I guess it was kind of funny, and then there was sort of heavy drama. It was great. It was a great experience. Now, how did you juggle that? Because I'm sure they shot all in different places, because especially back then, it was in 2005, 2006, yeah. it, was, it, was, it wasn't all concentrated, like murder in the first shoots here. And I know you guys shot, I think, believe, in San Francisco the first season. But back then, I'm sure, you know, because Abraham Ben Ruby was on, and I, Men in Trees he was on, which he said was a, uh, it was a popular show, but something happened where it didn't work out. Yeah, I don't know what happened with that show. I, I I always thought it was going to be a huge hit, and they had great writing, and they had they had they had good actors and everything. I just don't think the audience ever grabbed onto it the way people thought they would because I thought it was a very sweet show, and they 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 wrote some really funny stuff for me. I I had a great time on that. But that shot in Vancouver, and then uh, Boston Legal shot in Manhattan Beach, and then Desperate Housewives was at Universal, and House was at Fox. So you you got the luck of the draw that only one of them shot out of state. Yeah, but I would go like I would go shoot on House on Monday, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd be at Desperate Housewives, and then Thursday, I would go to Boston Legal, and then Boston Legal would take me to the airport, and I would fly up to Vancouver and spend four or five days there. So you're getting all this done. You're working your ass off, and were your characters very much the same characters, or were you, were you getting to bend some muscles certain ways? No, they were all they were all very different, which was really fun. It was like getting to do theater and repertoire. You know, it was there was there was four different characters going on, and they were all vastly different, and and uh, it was really fun. It was it was a great great time as 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 an act for me as an actor to to get to wear all these different hats. Now, as an actor, how do you change those hats? Because it's, I'm sure, was there a favorite role? I mean, it's like anything, I'm sure. You know, you, you go and you you like this role. And, and, of course, you like all the roles because you're getting paid and you're having fun and you're doing what you love, as you said, is almost like a hobby. How would you change your hats? Because it would probably be so mentally consuming because you have to put different hats on. How, how did you deal with that? I don't know. It's like, it's like uh, music. You you put on certain music and you know to dance a certain way, right? Or, or you, you you have a music in your head. And each show for me had its own music. It had its own sound. And it was it was kind of it wasn't that hard for me to go from from Boston Legal to to being you know being a really really smart guy on Boston Legal and then fly to Vancouver and be a really dumb police officer. Sweet and stupid, just so stupid. So naive, and and then and then go off to house and and be a guy who's really sick and dying, and I don't know. It's just the the music of the roles and the music of the words, and it it uh, it didn't seem that difficult. Now talking about music, what kind of music does uh what, what what kind of music do you listen to? I listen to everything. You know, I have a seven year old, so I get a lot of pop music time in the car. Uh, with Sirius, I'm I'm on uh, you know the pop music stations a lot. Um, I like the underground garage stuff, the, uh, the the underground garage stuff a lot. Um, classics, uh, hip hop. I'm sort of. I worked with an acting teacher one time who said to me, he said, to stay current, to stay rel- relative relevant, you have to listen to all different kinds of music, read all different kinds of books, travel all different countries, and so I try not to get caught up on like. You know, guys, guys that are in their forties will only listen to music, this kind of music or or that. I, I try to stay very eclectic with with everything I do. You're a good man because I always give I always give Joanne shit because she's she, she'll be fifty in September, and uh, she listens to this 
on Sirius, she listens to like this pop stuff, and I go, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I feel old. I'm like, Jesus Christ! I go, you're listening to the stuff that's that's in your niece who's 21's iPod. I'm like, sit there, let's let's turn it to, to classic rock or sure. the or the 80s. But yeah. you're right. I, I, the thing is, I just for me, I'm, I'm a, I love music, but I just can't listen to the new music these days because it just it depresses me because it's not you know, give me some aha or give me some Pearl Jam, and I'm a happy guy. And yeah, I just can't listen to this shit. I got it, but you know what? I, I I see I see the value in it, and and I see the joy that it gets my kid that we can sing a Selena Gomez song together in the car. I'm not afraid to admit it; it makes me happy. Well, it's your kid; it should it should make you amazingly happy. But sure. when, when when your girlfriend's listening to this crap, I'm like, come on now. That's all. I mean, you know what? If it makes her happy, I'm like, look. If if it gets you in the mood, fantastic. <laughs> Let's keep it on. Let's keep it on the pop music and light a candle. So, so, so now, now you sit there and you're working all these shows. Yep. And then all of a sudden they start getting canceled, and you're an yep. actor. Are, are, are you sitting there? Do you, do you have to go back and audition, or do people know you? And you sit there and they go, "Man, this guy was a regular on four shows." It's sort of like Spencer Garrett. You're like the Spencer Garrett. You know, he's a good friend of mine. I love yeah, Spencer. And Spencer, you guys are the same. Like. Every show you put on, I see Spencer all the time. I'm like, I swear yeah. to God, I saw, I saw an ESPN commercial. I think Spencer was playing basketball. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> but no. So what happens with your career then? Are you in demand? Are people sitting there making you audition, or are they just giving you parts? I think it depends what it is. Like, I, I mean, I haven't honestly done a lot of auditions in the last few years. Um, a lot of the stuff, like the last thing, Agent Carter, uh, Marvel reached out and they were like, "We want you to do Agent Carter," and I was like, "There's an offer to come do the season," and I was like, "Fantastic." Um, sometimes they'll ask me to audition, but I've been pretty blessed in the last few years that uh, most of it comes through a phone call. When we take a look at a demo, or or they take a look at my, some of my other work, or it's just you know straight offer because we liked you in whatever show. What's it like doing a Marvel show? Because it is such a. Uh, it's always I always compare anything that Marvel is involved with is sort of like anything that Star Trek's involved with. It has a certain fan base. They're they're just loving, and they sit there. I mean, I remember I, I talked to Robert Picardo, who someone he was on Star Trek. He said all the fans in Star Trek just embraced him, even though he took someone's role over, and they know all your work. Marvel seems like the same type of uh, crowd. What is it like when you get cast in a Marvel series? It's fantastic. I, Marvel takes great care of you. Uh, they're very secretive. It's it's like a secret society that you've been invited into. It's they they open this, this secret door and you step in and you go, oh, this is cool. This is a cool little universe you guys have going on. And the fans are the fans are loyal and rabid and they love it. And and I just felt really grateful to be a part of it. And the the producers, everyone involved, was so incredibly nice and smart and. You know, like uh, from top to bottom, just just great people. And the actors, like Haley Atwell and James Darcy, and they were just all great people. It was like a, a beautiful little family, a funny, weird, crazy little family. It was it was some of the best uh, episodes. Of getting getting a chance to work with them was so fun. Now, when when you started doing that, did you start getting recognized more? Because you've had this great body of work, and it's like anything. You know, you're one of those guys. You're a character actor. You've been working forever. And people will recognize you from certain shows. And yep. all of a sudden you sit there and go, wow, you get in a Marvel show. You probably just got a whole different fan base and you can probably go do Comic-Cons now. 
Well, yeah, I think that's a possibility. I've been I've been so busy with work and stuff. I haven't really ventured into that area yet. But um, yeah, there's you know, it's funny as a character actor, people you know, everywhere I go, people recognize me. But it's always from something else. You know, like you're the guy from this or you're the guy from that, and they don't go, oh, you're from this series. They everyone has their own take on where I'm from, and some people just think I'm their next door neighbor. That's funny. I was at the party last night, and this guy, he, he was he was creepy looking. And he, he was a character actor, but he was all in, like, B stuff. And I'm like, dude, you look so familiar, because I'm very adept to picking sure. out actors, because that's what I do. I interview you guys. Yeah. And then he's telling me all this crap. And then I look at, like, his IMDb. I go, oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, I'm like, I'm going to get another beer. <laughs> I, think, I think this town and I think this business, it's its all about perception, right? And and people want to change their perception no matter what the reality is. Now, so people, people fudge the truth a lot in this business about, about what they're doing and, and what's going on. Isn't it amazing? Because I sit there, it's like, I like, you know, I'll watch, I'll watch, uh, actually, I want to talk, we'll talk about murder first in a second. Your lawyer the other night, I'm like, to Joanne, I'm like, God damn, who is that guy? So I, I, I try to IMDB Tropic of Cancer, the guy who played your lawyer or your prospective lawyer. We don't know what's going to happen. And there was nothing up about it. But I go to IMDB and what bothers me is all of a sudden, you know, people, can anyone can list themselves on IMDB if yes. you're a background. Like my girlfriend, Joanne, is, a, is does motivational speaking, but when she doesn't, she's SAG. She made SAG in a year and, and she's a background actor and thank God to Chris Dematopoulos, he got Joanne as a regular on Good Girls Revolt. But she doesn't sit there and she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to act. But so many people will sit there and list their credit as like you go on IMDb and you're looking for an actor as perception. Then right. I go, I go, okay, who's that guy? And all of a sudden I go, oh yeah, pedestrian number two. It's yep. like, get off the goddamn IMDb because I got to find out who my next guest is. Yeah. The, the guy who plays my, my DUI lawyer on the show is Michael Gaston. And Michael Gaston is, I think, one of the best actors I've ever worked with. Why? He's so real. He's so in the moment. Uh, I never feel like he's just saying lines. Uh, he brings a real charm to it. He's a great listener. Um, he's just completely committed to his 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 work. And, and it's funny because... Some people leave themselves at the door and create other characters, but I always kind of feel like there's Michael, and it's it's so cool to see an actor who brings himself a hundred percent to his work. Like you go, that's him, that's the guy. Now, Murder the First. I yes, love sir. I love the show, and Thank uh, you. and 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 your character has grown a lot as Lombardo's has as I think everyone has. And what people don't get is, I tell people, okay, watch Murder in the First. I didn't watch the first two seasons. You don't have to watch any of the seasons because if you start watching the third season, what's great about it is it's it's like a mini series every yeah. every year. How did that come about? And, and we're how happy were you to get reunited with Stephen Bochco? Well, it was it was fan- I knew that they were they were putting the show together because Stephen had called me and said we're putting the show together and I'd like you to be in it. And uh, I said, well, what do you want me to play? And he said, I don't know yet. Give me some time. And so uh, he sort of gave me the premise that each season would be its own, like you said, own little miniseries. We're going to follow one storyline from beginning to end. And I was like, fantastic, sounds great. And um, I would never say no to Stephen Bochco. So uh, that's sort of the premise, and I think it's sort of built on his show that he used to have, uh, Murder One, where they sort of followed one, one, one murder for a whole season. 
And so they took this, they truncated the season, make it 10 episodes, so you get a lot more going on, things move a little faster. And, and that's sort of the, 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 the season in a nutshell. So you don't have to watch season one and season two. You don't have to watch any of the seasons to pick up and, and figure out what's going on right now. A lot of people are like, oh, I missed the first two. And I'm like, doesn't matter. This is its own season. So you sit there, they call you, and then when did, when did you find out what character you would play? When did Steven decide what you would be? And were you hoping it would be a lawyer? Were you hoping it would be a cop? What, what, what were you expecting? Um, I was at Steven's Christmas party. First of all, I got to interrupt you real quick. Uh, yeah. Lombardo told me Steven's Christmas party is his house takes up like three blocks. He said it's, there's like two different entrances. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty nice. I mean, it's, as, it's not ostentatious like you would think a guy who's worth that much money would be. Like, I feel like it's homey. It's his home. It doesn't feel like some crazy mansion on a hill. But it is, it is, it's incredibly beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's full on. It's a full on, like, Hollywood house, home. But it doesn't feel, I don't know, it doesn't feel over the top to me. So you go to his Christmas party and what happens? Uh, I see him at the door. He greets everyone that comes to his Christmas party. Stephen greets at the door. He stands there all night. He greets everyone who comes in. He le- and he greets everyone that leaves. So he's the, like the perfect host. It's ridiculous. And I come in the door and he said, uh, hey, welcome aboard. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I, I found the role for you. I want you to play, uh, you know, the district attorney. I want you to try all the cases. What, kind of, I, what kind of Christmas present is that? that that's got to be the best Christmas present ever. It's, it's pretty great. It's, it's pretty great. And I, I remember being like, is he serious? Like, are we, is this just the Christmas wine talking? Or are we just, are we really having a real conversation here? And then the other guy who created the show with him came up to me. And he said, I'm so excited you're going to do this. It's going to be great. And I was like, okay, off we go. So you go into the first season. And your character is not that integral, but it's good. What is that like? And did you know that your character would grow? And to, as, as we know for the first two episodes this year, you're a major plot line. But in your first season, you're happy to be aboard. You know it's you know it's going to be a quality because it's Stephen Bosco. The, yep. the cast is great. You got Diggs. You got yeah. Raphael. You got Lombardo. You got Kathleen. I mean, what is it like as an actor when you go and you just say, I'm glad to be here? Oh, I, well, you know, I also knew they brought on James Cromwell. Okay. So I knew that everything I was going to be doing the first season was going to be with James Cromwell and Tom Felton. And Cromwell's a legend. So as an actor, to have that challenge to go, okay, I'm going to go up against a guy, an Academy Award winner, uh, who, who's been doing this for 55 years, uh, who is super talented and, and kind and generous, I was so excited just to be focused on that part of it. I wasn't concerned about how much or how little I had. I knew that what I had was going to be substantial and that I was going to be working with him. How do you prep yourself to go against a legend? It's, it, to me, it's like I always make sports analogies. It's, it's like back in the day, if, if you're a rookie and all of a sudden you're first to bat, and this wasn't your first to bat, but your first to bat's against a Randy Johnson who's just a dominant figure. As an actor, do you sit there and go, you know what, man, I got, I got, I got to slug it. I got to hit it out of the park. How do you get into the psyche to to work with something like that? Because I treat every role the same. I don't, I don't have like, oh, I'm going to work harder on this one or I'm going to work harder on that one. I think my prep, no matter who I'm acting with, whether it's James Spader or Dennis Franz or Hugh Laurie or James Cromwell or Mary Louise Parker, whoever I'm working with, the the the, the preparation doesn't change. 
that that part of it's irrelevant. Um, it's it's just doing my work, being prepared, being clear on my intentions, and showing up and being present. So it's it's not like you go, oh, I'm really gonna, oh, I'm working with this guy, I'm really gonna give it this time. But if I'm working with this guy, I'm, eh, whatever. I think it's I think it's always the same for me. So. I enjoy the challenge of like you know stepping into work with Dennis Franz. He's been playing the character for for ten years, and then you step into work with him, and and you know trying to get up to speed to work with a guy like that who's been doing a character for so long. It didn't change anything I did. It just it just made me made me double down on the work that I normally do and and show up and and then play. So you deliver the first season. You're you're you're, you're balls to the wall with Cromwell. Yep. So, so now the second season, do you sit there? Do they tell you, hey, we're gonna we're gonna Expand your role, or what? What do they tell you is going to happen the second season? Because it, the second season was so after the Boston Marathon massacre, it was it was, it was so touching. You, this, that, that opening, your your first episode, was just one of those things where you sit there in the second season, and you go, "Holy crap!" It was it was one of those things where you just riveted the TV, and then you sit there and you play this role. How is that? I mean, how is it when you do something very socially conscious that you have to deliver? Were you, were you sitting there? Were you excited? Were you like, man, you know what? I'm going to make a point here. I, I, it was. It, it concerned me. I was. I was worried about. I was worried about the content that season. It was. It was very tough for everybody involved because you're talking about, you know, kids being killed, children, and uh, it, it was very, very. Um, I think we were all very moved by it. Um, and then trying to give it the, the gravitas that it deserves, trying to give it the the, the sentiment and the, the the sensitivity that it needed, because it was some heavy, heavy material. Oh, the, the, that, that episode was—I mean, you, you watched it and you went, "Shit!" I mean, you're sitting there, you're going, "Hey, th- this this is uh, Showtime crap. This is Ray Donovan crap. This isn't yeah. this this yeah. isn't TNT. This isn't Major Crimes or Rosalind Isles. No, this and and and, and it blew you away." Yeah, it was it was pretty intense, and I, and I think that the the audience was sort of even the audience was like, "Whoa, you guys are going deep here," and it got it got really dark. It was it was a really dark year, and and, and oddly enough, I think some of the fans were frightened of it a little bit. I think they were maybe a little turned off by the depth that we went to on that show because you know not everybody's up for that. That's not everybody's that's not everybody's thing. We still, I mean, I get tweets now where where, where people are. Angry that we used the Lord's name in vain. See, that's, that's so crazy. But the funny thing is, your character was somewhat the hero of that season. Yeah, he sort of pulled it together in the end. I, I think that they they sort of kept me in the weeds and kept me at a distance for a while because they wanted me to come in and work this out and and make it happen. And and I think as from like episode eight on, he sort of took over the story and and um, and really brought it together for for the ending and and which which was. I love the ending of that of the second season. I know some people have thoughts on it, and, and some fans were disappointed, and some fans were happy. But I thought it was fantastic, and I thought the actors did a great job. So you, you're the hero, and first of all, we we hate your son anyway, <laughs> and we hated him last season. We hate him more or less. He's a guy like I was at a party last night. If that guy was there, I would have punched him in the face. But, uh, so you're the hero. You're on the high thing, and then you you come out the first episode of the season and we find out and you know and I we've talked about you getting on my show and, and I respect your acting and I was like all right he's a great character and like Mox and Lombardo you know and they're they're good people but then the first episode of the season you're just a, a, a 
cheating prick. I mean, how does that come up? Did they sit there and go, we're going to take you from the high horse to just an awful person? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's the um, uh, morally ambiguous, right? I mean, he's he's doing his thing. He's, he's sort of reached some level of fame and stardom. And uh, things at home have been rough. And he's got this cute, hot, young girl. And she's gorgeous. And she's way into him, he thinks. And so he's going to live his life a little bit. He's going out on a limb. And it's, it's interesting to look at, like, you sort of look at your life. Like, I look back at my life and I go, you know, it just takes one mistake to have a tsunami of shit rolling down on you. Right. It just takes one little mistake and then all of a sudden it's just unbelievably horrific how your life can turn. And, and that's what I really liked about, what I like about this season is that it's, it's one trip to the ladies' room and his whole life comes apart. How exciting as an actor is that to sit there and, first of all, the creators are showing a confidence in you because they're taking your character full turn and that, that means that they go, okay, he's got the chops. How exciting as an actor is that to sit there and play a role that now you're, you're, you're going 360 from what we thought? Yeah, it's, it's great. I, I know Stephen was sort of talking to me a little bit about uh, writing me out of the box that they had me in. They sort of had me in this DA spot where they couldn't do a lot of stuff with me other than take me to court and have some family stuff. So I, I knew that something was in the wind in terms of what they were planning for the third season about getting me out from behind the desk and, and having a bigger storyline. And so when this came out, I was like, wow, they really, they meant it. They were serious. And, oh. and it's great because the, the, the storyline, if, if people just stick with it, it is... Uh, it's it's heartbreaking and heart wrenching, and I think at the end you'll you know you sort of see some humanity, well, not 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 outside of his character, but you will see some humanity. Well, what's funny about the character is, and, and this is because you're a guest, so I I'm a little you know favorable to you, but when I'm sitting there and, and when the accident happens, I'm like, it was her fault. She kept yelling at him. <laughs> she was yelling at him. I know me and Joanna will sit there, we'll argue. And I'm like, don't argue when I'm driving because that yeah. shit will happen. <laughs> I've gotten a lot of feedback. It's so funny because when we were shooting it, I, it never occurred to me that it was partially her fault. I, I only saw it like if, if I hadn't been cheating and if I hadn't changed my passcode and I hadn't been drinking. And I yeah, I think all these things. But I guess in a sense, she is partially responsible. How do you deal? How do you deal with, with just a, a, an actor who plays your son who's just a prick? I, I, I think I am, too. I mean, I, I understand that he's a prick, but if he's raised by his father, hasn't isn't the most. It's not like I'm a huggy, cuddly guy, and so if you're raised by a guy who's who's a little thorny, you end up with a kind of a thorny kid. And and I wonder, there's a part of me that almost admires his prickliness because it's like you know the the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? No, you're right. We we have a few minutes left, so uh, and then you're going to be on an episode of Westworld. Yeah, I did a few Westworlds. Uh, I did the pilot for them, uh, and then went back and did another one after that. And then I, my schedule got busy, so I couldn't I couldn't join them for more. But uh, great experience, huge project. Massive. I I know. I I, pl I played a hand insert in that show. Ah. I was the one guy. He was uh, the guy with the beard. I don't know his name. I think he's Scottish. And I was his hands. I, went up I, I sat around for like six hours and I go into the second unit and I'm acting like I'm getting stabbed. And all you see is my hands in this ugly jumpsuit. Were you, were you, were you a, a, a town folk or were you a scientist? I was a guest. 
So okay, so you, so you, you but you got to you got to dress in uh, the gear. Oh yeah, I had the whole gear. I was a very very flamboyant guest. I think that when you see it, you'll you'll see he this character wanted to have a really good time. You're echoing. Did you did you do something to your mic? Oh sorry, my, you can't hear me. No, you're echoing. Oh there, is that better? Yeah, we have, we don't have a few minutes left. Oh, yeah, so so I always, I always like to ask my guests, what have you been killed many times on screen, and what was your best kill? My best kill. Getting killed. How many times have you been killed? I, I don't know. Probably a dozen or two dozen times. I, I can't remember. I mean, I've been. I was. I was. I was shotgun through a pinball machine. Uh, I've been uh, burned. I've been killed in a car wreck. I, I, just about every way you can die, I've died. What was the scariest way to get killed? With with if there was a crappy crew, like Abraham uh, Ben Ruby said, something screwed up the splurges. Bodie Elfman said that he knew it wouldn't work so that, that they tried it in Canada and then the stuntman got hurt. Was there anything that you were worried about when you, when yeah, you got killed? Yeah, there was killed? one time the director asked me, so there was a, I'm supposed to jump off a bridge and, and I land on the street but I'm not dead yet. And so I'm, la- I'm lying on this highway and a dump truck is supposed to run over me. And the director says, just lie there for this first shot and we'll have the dump truck racing down the street and it'll stop before it hits you. And I said, I said, what? He said, yeah, just lie there and we'll, we'll slam on the brakes and we'll stop the dump truck right before it hits you. And I'm like, I'll tell you what I'll do. I watch you do it first and you show me it's okay, then I'll do it. And then he was like, okay, bring in the stunt guy. Because... <laughs> There's no way I'm going to lie down on a street and let a dump truck come screeching up to stop me. There's no way that's going to happen. That's just never going to happen. And so the director was like, yeah, forget it. So what are you shooting now? Anything? Because uh-huh. you had that whole season of Murder First. It, it, it's just, it just wrapped, I know. Do you take some time off or do you start pursuing projects right away? Well, I have some, I have some irons in the fire about some stuff people want me to do. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of writing. I have uh, a bunch of different projects that are out at different places uh, that I've uh, created. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of doing, I've got some pitch meetings. Uh, I'm interviewing a few writers for a, a film that I'm working on. Um, so it's a lot of um, a lot of writing. A lot of writing right now. You can interview me. I, I optioned a screenplay many years ago. I'm a very good writer. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm a jack of all trades. It's okay. a brutal profession, isn't it? Oh, God, it's crazy. You know, I want to thank you for coming on. We, we got to give give all your social media stuff because this was I had so much fun today, and because uh, I love your show, and, and we've chased each other. I've chased you for a while, not stalker like, but but we finally got it set up. Now that I can do it out of my home, give all your info. Give your give give your your Facebook. If you have Instagram, if you have Twitter, give that it's, all. Everything is my name, Curry Graham, and you can find me on Twitter at Curry Graham and uh, on Instagram, same thing, and Facebook. So people follow Cary Grant, and, and he live tweets during Murder in the First, which you, if you aren't watching, you're idiots. Because luckily, we get we get the East Coast feed. We get it at 7 o'clock, and uh, we, we tape it anyway, but we never end up watching it on tape. We watch Ray Donovan, and we watch Murder in the First. That's how great both these shows are. So follow him. Follow me on uh, Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Also, follow me on uh, Instagram, at Cooper Talk 1. Words with friends, I will play you at Cooper Talk 1. Uh, my website, coopertalk.net. I have 530 episodes up there. And you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And don't forget about my other website, stopthesalt.com. You just got done eating on 4th of July. You got to look after your health. When I got out of the hospital with my heart disease, 
I wrote a cookbook, 120 easy recipes. Now you can buy it on Amazon, or you can buy it on Barnes & Noble, but if you buy it at coopertalk.net, I make more money. And isn't it about me making money? <laughs> that, that's what it's about, it's not. So do me that, sit that up, and also, I mean, follow Kerry. Watch Murder in the First. And uh, I'm Steve Cooper, I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, drink your water. I'll be back next week with a whole new slew of guests. So I will see you and listen to you next week.